Welcome to the Racisms Podcast. We're your hosts, Jazlyn and Lisa. We decided that this world could use more cross-cultural conversations that seek healing over division, understanding over ignorance, and a better world overall. Welcome back to the Racisms Podcast, where we have cross-cultural conversations to make this world a better place. I'm Lisa, co-host of the podcast with Jaslyn. Hey. And today we have a very special guest, Tanya Ula. Tanya, say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. So Tanya, like many of our guests, is part of our social justice club at work. And before the formation of the club, Tanya and I would regularly get together in the office to talk about culture, being a woman in the workplace, and even mentor female students at our work. So we have Tanya here today to talk about the topic of the model minority myth. Uh, but before we get into the topic, um, Tanya, would you mind telling the, li- the listeners about yourself, how you choose to self-identify, and anything else you want to tell us? Sure. Um, hello, ladies. Hello, podcast listeners. Um, I've been a longtime listener. This is my first time on the podcast, so I'm very excited. Um, I'm Tanya, a 30-something-year-old, uh, originally from New York City. I identify as a Muslim American woman with roots in South Asia. My parents um, emigrated from Bangladesh um, before I was born, so I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And I feel like the I'm at the intersection of several identities and labels, um, which makes this question kind of hard for me to answer. So I can get more into that later. Okay, thank you, Tanya. Yeah, great to have you. Um, Tanya, I don't know if I ever told you this, uh, but you were the first person I'd heard use the term model minority. Uh, And at first when I heard the term, I was like, what? But I was like, oh yeah, totally makes sense. Um, So today we're gonna dive more into that topic. Uh, But first I'd like to give um, everybody uh, a definition of what model minority is. And I did get this from Wikipedia. A model minority is a minority demographic, whether based on ethnicity, race, or religion, whose members are perceived to achieve a higher degree of socioeconomic success than the population in, on average, thus serving as a reference group to other outgroups. I'll also add, um, this was prob- maybe not in Wikipedia, but it's usually attributed to Asians and Asians being this really broad term that includes East Asian, which I am part of, Southeast Asian, uh, South Asian, which Tanya just said she identifies with, uh, and also Pacific Islanders. Um, so Tanya, like, do you think I captured it correctly or did you want to um, add anything else to that definition yeah um that's um a pretty standard textbook definition there's so many other things at play but um we can get into that um as the discussion wears on awesome yeah so i talked a little bit about how i first heard the term which was from tanya so tanya can you tell us um maybe when you first heard it or how it Uh, affected your upbringing if you heard it when you were young yeah well um that's an interesting question because 
I'm not sure that I remember learning about the term in any formal way. It's not like I learned it from a book or, or you know, uh, a social studies class or anything. But I do feel like I learned it kind of observing the world around me and how folks interacted with me based on what they thought my identity was. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm at the intersection of you know, a couple of dual identities. And one of them is being like, you know, South Asian presenting. So I'm brown. I, you know, when I was growing up, a lot of people looked at me and thought I would like recognize that I was South Asian and thought I was Indian. And um, I think that changed around my mid 20s when I, I started wearing the the hijab, which is the headscarf that uh, some Muslim women wear. So at that age, I kind of, be- I became more Muslim presenting. And so people's view of me kind of changed. So mm-hmm. I think it was in that, like, noticing the difference in how people viewed me is when I realized, oh, okay, like, I was treated differently as someone who was perceived to be Indian or South Asian. And now I have some other labels that are really different. And, um, you know, a lot of us um, are scientists and engineers on this podcast. And um, you guys know that, you know, Asians are not, uh, while they're a minority probably in the in the U.S. population, they, they aren't a, a minority in in our fields of of work so I think that 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 kind of came into play when I was in in college and when I was um first starting to work how I saw people seeing me as Asian versus you know generic Muslim Mm -hmm. yeah um the other thing is like you know um I think a lot of East East Asians and South Asians, they, um, so what happened in the 60s and 70s is a lot of Asians started emigrating to the U.S. And that was because um, immigration laws started changing and the U.S. was accepting more applications from from folks within Asia that had, um, that were of like a higher socioeconomic class and higher education levels. So the idea was to get well-educated professional Asians coming into the U.S. That was kind of like a socially engineered um, phenomenon. So Mm. what ended up happening is there's a lot of Asians in the U.S. that have um, higher degrees, for example, or they're doctors and lawyers and engineers. And growing up for me, um, my parents are, you know, I grew up working class and my parents were not professionals. So being at the intersection of that identity of like, you know, I, I grew up, you know, and I pursued a career that was more of like a professional career. I had an advanced degree, but my parents didn't. I kind of saw like the model minority myth at play within these different groups of, of Asian folk. So that's mm-hmm. kind of how I learned about it. Yeah, uh, I mean, lots to unpack there. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk more about uh, people perceiving you as Indian versus 
where you're actually from does that is that a difference in your own uh, culture or is it just a perception that you know all groups from that area are in the model minority like myth yeah well that's a good question i think um so you know back when i presented more like let's say in graduate school right i didn't wear the headscarf then and i presented more as like a, a you know a brown south asian woman and i think that perhaps like you know my classmates or my professors or people like you know when i was doing internships and stuff um they thought oh here is someone who's indian mm-hmm. okay and um maybe they had experiences where they interacted with with folks of indian heritage who had like advanced degrees and who were well educated and so i feel like what that in turn does is applies this like sort of idea of exceptionalism to to certain minorities like you know in my case indian but like this i observed this like with east asians too right there's the these stereotypes that you know east asians and south asians are really good at math and if you if you look at any spelling bee competition like you know they're all asians right they're all like you know i think these days a lot of the kids are of indian descent so it just like solidifies this idea in 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 folks mind that oh inherently these you know groups of people are smarter and more capable um and in turn like these you know Asians what because they're getting like a lot of you know signals from the majority culture that they are exceptional they are smarter than you know the average american that you know their intelligence their hard work is the reason why they're achieving successes and privileges in in society right so you know you'll have you have a you know professional class of east and south asians who you know have like very they're very accomplished they make a lot of money they you know they have like a a social uh you know they occupy a social class that's um very different from probably other minority groups who don't have those same privileges and you know when when society makes you feel like oh it's because you're just inherently smarter and you work harder you start believing that that stuff too mm. yeah definitely i know growing up that's what i uh believed as well um my my family was also working class um and i and I, I don't know if you agree with this, but even though, you know, I didn't, even though my, my, my parents weren't professionals with professional degrees, mm-hmm. I feel like they still, they still held that model minority as our standard as well. You know, mm-hmm. work hard, succeed. Is that what you also saw? Yeah. I mean, my parents didn't have, like, my dad didn't finish college. My mom never, she finished high school, but she didn't go to college. But my parents really believed in the idea that, like, if I invested in my education, like, there was no limit to what I could achieve. And that the only reason, you know, that, you know, maybe they didn't have the privileges that they wanted was because, oh, there's just this limitation that they, you know, they just didn't go to college and all that. So while they didn't enjoy the privileges to the full extent that other South Asians did, they certainly, you know, prescribed to the to the model minority um, framework. And, 
you know, an, another thing that happens is, you know, Asians, they come to the U.S. and they see non-Asian BIPOC, right, who maybe, you know, aren't in um, the careers or the socioeconomic classes that um, they, you know, view highly, right? They because of the model minority myth, like they attribute it to maybe lack of effort or even laziness, which per, which basically perpetuates like the anti-black racism that is in this country because, you know, just because they too are people of color doesn't mean that they automatically empathize with other mm -hmm. people of color. And, yeah. you know, what I realized you know, kind of reflecting on how the dynamics I saw within the Asian community and how they interacted with other people of color, I realized, like, you know, this exceptionalism, like, you know, it's it, it doesn't only just affect your community and how you perceive yourself, but it really perpetuates the white supremacist, like, Kool-Aid that we all drink mm. um, being in this country. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, since you grew up in Brooklyn, yeah. New York, which is like a highly diverse area of this country, mm -hmm. like growing up with that, that framework, the model minority framework, how did that, how did that work or play into your interactions with um, other people in your community? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of don't want to, like my experience growing up in a diverse place like New York City is kind of anomalous right like most of America isn't isn't like that it isn't mm. you know I grew up with people from all countries speaking different languages having you know either they immigrated with their parents or you know their second third generation immigrant like you know identities were all over the place and so there wasn't like this monolithic white culture that we were always comparing ourselves to. Like I rarely had white classmates, for example. And like, for instance, I always bring up this um, example, like I don't celebrate Christmas because I'm not a Christian, but that wasn't even something strange growing up in New York mm -hmm. City because I had classmates who, you know, even if they weren't Muslim, like maybe they were Buddhist or Hindu or you know, their parents were atheists or something. And so there wasn't this idea that we had to conform to like the white norm. So in that sense, I felt really free. But um, I think that it, you know, just like in terms of the model minority myth, we were still subject to that, right? You don't really need white people present in your community to feel the uh, the oppression and the effects of white supremacy because like I said like it's like the Kool-Aid it's like the soup we live in and you know like all all of the you know uh, folks that I went to school with who were non-white like everybody was was a person of color we were all working class. So that hierarchy between like what white people could achieve and what like people of immigrant background and people of color could could, could achieve, like that stark difference was still noticeable, right? Um, like I, I would see white folks on TV and they had houses mm -hmm. very different from mine. They had education levels and 
you know, just experiences that were very different from mine. So I would say that like me, me and my peers, we, we just knew that like there was this other world of privilege that we didn't have access to. But I think like when you're Asian, like you're, you know, East or South Asian immigrant parents, they tell you, well, the key to like working past that is study really hard. Right. Because, you know, the U.S. is like, you know, education system is a meritocracy. You study really hard. People are already expecting you to do well, especially in math and science, because you look the part. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of it kind of comes the forces come from both ways. It's like people expecting you to do really well, you know, in terms of educational metrics. And then like, you know, your environment really pushing you there. Right. Mm -hmm. So I found like, you know, for instance, there there were like a lot of math science, like institutes and programs that, you know, we all applied for. And a lot of the kids around me were, you know, East Asian, were South Asian. And I think it was a self-selection thing, not not necessarily that we were inherently smarter or better at those subjects. Hmm. So can you talk a little bit about um, how your community changed when you went to college, leaving Brooklyn, um, and how, like, this all kind of played into that? Yeah, and, yeah, so when I went to college, right, like, I went to um, an engineering school, so, you know, everyone around me was, like, you know, studying something within the disciplines of science and engineering and technology. You know, it wasn't, it was very rare to find someone who was in the liberal arts. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was surrounded yet again by, um, by a lot of Asians. And mm-hmm. I, f- like, I realized that all my friends who, you know, were, South Asian identifying like I was, you know, they had very different upbringings from from me. Um, a lot of them, their um, their parents were professors or were working professionals who kind of like primed them or paved the way for them to like really get interested in these types of careers. Um, and it was really rare, rare for me to meet someone with, you know, a similar background as, as mine who also was working class. Mm. So that's when I kind of like started questioning a lot of like these ideas that my peers were having, right? Like, for example, like, uh, my peers, like they really believed that, you know, they really prescribed to the model minority myth, the idea that like, you know, their hard work was, leading them to these like institutions, these like ivory halls of, of um, academia and that people were respecting them because of their, like their abilities and their work ethic and like, you know, what they can contribute to their fields. Right. But growing up, I felt like, okay, well, my parents, maybe they don't have degrees, you know, like, you know, my friend's parents do, but, they still work really hard and they're still, you know, you know, trying to navigate this world, um, you know, in a way to, you know, like 
channeling that that work ethic to to make things happen for them, right? Like to achieve success, but they're not treated the same way as my peers' families are. So why is that? So I I guess like that kind of made me examine like all these ideas about like um, who deserve who deserves success, financial or otherwise, who deserves that versus people who don't. So there wasn't a large white population um, at this college. It was kind of like your Brooklyn community kind of just kind of moved with yeah, you. Yeah, there there weren't. Mm. And I, to be honest, like when I started working is when I really um, encountered like a large majority of white folks mm. that I interacted with. Because you, mm. you, you have to also realize like I didn't, my social world wasn't white either. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah. you know, I. I basically socialized with a lot of folks that, you know, were kind of like the people I grew up with. They were just like, you know, from everywhere. Um, and, you know, that that was really different from how my friends grew up, like my friends who are brown or who are people of color, you know, who didn't grow up in like big metropolitan areas. They were probably the only person of color or the only South Asian um or East Asian in their class, right? So the way they interacted with the world was just so different. Lisa, did you experience a similar thing when you went to college? Uh, I grew, so I went to high school in a predominantly white neighborhood, but I did hang out mostly with um, my, with Asian, South, South Asian and East Asian. Um, and a lot of them were, also working class just I think based on where we lived um so I didn't actually know a lot of well I went to Chinese school with with a lot of East Asians whose parents had professional degrees and I thought they were too stuck up for me to make friends with um and I mean I'll admit it I judged a lot of ABCs American-born Chinese because they seem to be more from families who were uh, more wealthy or more educated, and I was uh, not, and I was from working class. Um, But when I went to college, and I've said this before, I I aligned myself more with like the Christian community, which was also predominantly white. Um, And this, this model minority myth, you know, because I wasn't able to like pinpoint it up until, you know, Tanya mentioned it in my, you know, late adulthood. Uh, I like, I didn't really understand how I was like internalizing this meritocracy until it was like pointed out. Did you feel like that there was an, as an Asian, like, or as an East Asian in particular, that the people around you expected you to do well in in like school and like just like any endeavor like maybe because there are other stereotypes not just like that you know Asians are good at you know like schoolwork but you know like that you would play, play the piano or you'd be good at like you know like other things that people stereotype Asians to be good at. You know, I think my parents, um, because they were working class, they like, like they didn't afford us many of those things, I guess, that you would expect 
stereotypically expect an Asian to have, such as like private, you know, music lessons and tutors and mm-hmm. stuff. But I mean, I did well in school. I did play the violin, so I kind of fit into yeah their their stereotypes. Um, and my parents they didn't push they didn't push these things. They offered, you know, that I could play violin with the school. They could rent a violin for me. Uh, and so but they always and particularly my dad he always talked about working hard um, and being able to exceed by just working hard Um, yeah so I yeah I I think that the the power of stereotypes um, especially when you're in your like developmental stages like early on in life um, when through young adulthood is that it can really shape how you view yourself, right? So if they're quote-unquote positive stereotypes, like people expect you to um, do well in school or to, you know, pursue like really competitive careers or to be, you know, good at the arts or whatever, then it's almost like you work harder to live up to that stereotype because that's what's expected of you, right? And on the flip side, I can imagine like if people were um, applying negative stereotypes to me, like always expecting me to fail, always expecting me to like, you know, like, you know, be problematic or uncooperative or what have you, then um, like my actions would in it like somehow kind of, you know, play to that stereotype, if that makes any sense. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, And I think even if your family, like you said, like even though like you lived in a community that was um, diverse, didn't have a large white population, like even though you can surround yourself with people who are trying not to, you know, put these stereotypes on you because the larger society at whole, as a whole, because media, you know, mm-hmm. sends these messages like you can't even like get away from it. Mm-hmm. So this is the phenomenon I observed once I you know, left my community, my, you know, like really diverse, but working class community in, in New York was that I, there was a strong association with like, you know, identifying strongly with your culture. And for instance, like, you know, practicing the, the traditions you know, that you grew up with, maintaining your, the, like, your language, whatever language you grew up speaking at home, if it wasn't English, you know, um, like, sticking to your culture kind of meant that you were holding yourself back from, like, achieving in this, like, white-dominated society. So when I, like, went to school and, like, when I went to the workplace, it almost seemed like, you know, Asians who kind of shed their Asian heritage or didn't make it too pronounced and wanted to achieve white cultural norms, those people were rewarded by like being perceived as more successful. So I part of this whole like minority myth or model minority phenomenon is that like Asians, East, South, what have you, they're always trying to like the gold standard is to achieve like what white people achieve. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I just, I remember observing like, you know, you know, you were saying you didn't really relate to um, 
like the folks in your Chinese school who came from like whose parents were like more professional or like they were like in another class as you because you kind of perceived them as uppity right Mm -hmm. so for for me like I remember perceiving you know those same groups of people in my community as wanting to be white Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and so that was like that was the beginning of when I realized like this whole this whole myth this whole like phenomenon that you know we prescribe to is really just a part of this huge like white supremacist structure mm-hmm. in the US. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, cuz like think about the things that like, you know, our parents or our communities of origin deem successful. It's like, okay, well, have a big house in the suburbs. Have your kids go to a school with, you know, a lot of white kids, right? Mm. You know, have more things and more cars and vacations. And, you know, that is basically all the stuff that, you know, people from a privileged white class enjoy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the it's the culture in in Asia as well. You know, they're they they study hard to get good grades on their entrance exams in order to get into a reputable college in order to, you know, afford a home or a car when when they get a job and a house. Um, And I think that just. It just all easily fit into the white supremacist framework because that's already the things that many people hold you know, as metrics of success back in Asia. And so they just, they maybe white white supremacy played into that Mm -hmm. already existing, you know, need or desire and Mm -hmm. just like fed it, like really fed into it. dominated spaces um do you feel like you are tokenized as an asian or how do you think people perceive you as an asian american versus like an east asian person who let's say just immigrated Hmm. do you think there's a nuance that people perceive uh i think i'm on both sides uh, I think at like in a work professional setting in which I know people, I think that mm-hmm. I feel like I belong more. But if I'm in a setting where I don't know anyone or if it's just like a community activity that I definitely feel very other um, and people can't distinguish between whether I grew up in the States or if I didn't, um, if I speak English or not, you know, if I have an if I have an education or not. Uh, so, you know, I think that the model minority myth, like you said, is is saying, hey, you know, you fit in. If you do these things, you'll fit in. But at the same time, you know, I remember, I have to remember that, like, I'm never going to really be accepted. Mm-hmm. 
um, it's just a way to use me as a tool. And I think we want to talk about that as well as how they, uh, it, they use it as a tool to, to, to break us up, you know, to, to weaponize us against one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely did not see that until very recently when I started learning more about this myth. So did you see like that it, it causes like a divide or um, this one NPR article said it, it makes a, a racial wedge between Asians and blacks? Yeah, I think uh, I think I've always noticed that this is what I've noticed a lot, because like we've been saying in this podcast, like we are, you know, in our work, um, Asians are am I, are not a minority, but they are like model non white folks in this environment. Right. Mm-hmm. So I I what I noticed is a lot of east and south asians um at at work or at school not realizing that there are other groups of people who work just as hard as they do but they have so much stacked against them that prevent them from like really you know achieving what they want to achieve right so you know um for example like i noticed that a lot of like you know asian um colleagues and friends of mine just weren't really aware of you know the extent to which racism especially like anti-black racism is at play in like all levels of society in the u.s right and my my thing is like if you don't notice it then it's probably because you are privileged enough to be able to like ignore what is happening or not be able to see what's happening right like it's a privilege not to really know that like you know they're you know the police are killing like disproportionately a whole race of people more than everyone else right it's a privilege because it doesn't affect your community. So I guess, you know, to answer your question, I just observed a lot of like, kind of just, uh, you know, people living in their own bubble and not noticing that, you know, there was just like a lot happening in society. Um, that was really problematic and, and racist. Yeah, so Jaslyn, uh, you mentioned in another episode that you grew up in a uh, diverse high school did you notice these kinds of dynamics in your high school playing out the modern minority myth the black community or some other observance um my high school like i said was diverse ish i mean there was a good mix of black and white but wasn't a lot of like asians or latinx people mm. but um, the Asian people that I did know were in the honors classes with me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that says. Um, I didn't really get their perspective on um, the minor, model minority myth or whether they felt any pressure to overperform. Um, but I want to go back to the the racial wedge between Asians and blacks. 
we talked about this on a previous episode, Lisa, when we discussed, you know, Rush Hour mm. and what the movie kind of perpetuated in terms of Chris Tucker's role and Jackie Chan's role. And you said that Chris Tucker's role like perpetuated the stereotypes that you already um, held about black people being that they were loud and you know, resisted authority and all that stuff. So when we talked about how those stereotypes, the negative t- stereotypes actually can produce like literal harm and bad things happening to black people, even though, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're stereotyping a whole group of people. And you talked about the Asian stereotype actually kind of being not a good stereotype, but it's not going to bring physical and, and danger, you know, harm it's and danger a dangerous to, force for us yeah Asian as much people. as it is for black people yeah so I mean do you what do you see is a negative or a or a harmful um aspect of the model minority myth well I was telling Lisa I I find all of it harmful I mean it's like we like, it might seem like it is helpful in that, like, there are quote-unquote positive stereotypes that allow Asians to probably, like, achieve more or move, like, um, quote-unquote, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But because we all, like, at the end of the day, it is a myth. Even if you prescribe to it and it helps you in certain ways, you know, no matter how much you prescribe to it, you know, people are always going to view you as an other, right? White folks are always going to view, you know, people who are Asian, who are, who don't look like them. I mean, I don't want to say always, I mean, there's a hope for a better new world, but, um, especially with things like this podcast, but, you know, I think it's, it is a problematic thing for our, you know, for Asian communities, because it gives us this false sense that we are accepted. Mm-hmm. And, a sh- and it almost blinds Asians to this notion that we could be the targets of, of racism, right? So when we are, right, when, when we are experiencing, um, you know, racist behavior, or like unfair behavior, I feel like, Often Asians are very like you know, I'm including myself. Obviously, we're slow to realizing like, oh, okay, we're not really accepted here, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to kind of answer your question, I don't think I, I think all of it is negative, and um, you know, I really wanted to actually go back to what you were saying, Jaslyn, about like the Rush Hour movie, um, about how. Black people in many Asian communities are, you know, there's a stereotype that they resist authority and that is bad, right? And that is the reason why maybe certain black people are subject to violence, right? I mean, I think you have to realize like where Asian folks are emigrating from. A lot of folks are emigrating from countries where maybe there are authoritarian governments, right? It's maybe they come from cultures where you would never dare 
to oppose authority figures, whether they're police or the government writ large, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when East and South Asian immigrants or other Asians emigrate to the U.S. and they see, you know, you know, people who seem to be, you know, resisting authority, that is just like, like, that goes against the grain of everything that they were raised to believe was right or wrong thing to do. And so they, you know, mistakenly attribute that as the cause of like a lot of like problematic things that probably happen to BIPOC communities. Mm -hmm. So how that plays into Asians behavior is they in, you know, when it comes to authority figures, whether it's a police officer, whether it's your boss at work, whether it's your professor at school, you pay deference to that individual. And then what, you know, what you're taught in Asian cultures is that that deference is going to pay off in that that person will treat you right. Right. And we all know, we all know, you know, that that doesn't work all the time. Right. Like, you know, violence against people is never warranted, you know, especially, you know, by people who are in uh, positions of authority, you know, and it's why you see a lot of Asian folks maybe not being very politically active or or not being like involved in social justice movements, you know, because they take this stance, because maybe they their parents or they themselves come from cultures where you just don't do that. You follow the rules and then you live like a peaceful life. Would you would you agree, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, I didn't think of it from that perspective, but that's definitely true that a lot of uh, Asian cultures do teach, you know, respect for authority, respect for elders. Um, and a lot of people emigrate from uh, governments that are authoritarian. Well, non-dem- non-democratic. No, I, de- I definitely understand where you're coming from. And I definitely mm-hmm. see how that feeds into the uh, anti-black sentiment within the Asian community. Definitely. Which is which yeah. is something we need to change, of course. Um, and another harm I see is that, like you said, like Asians can, they can ignore what's happening because it's not happening to their community. And that's harmful to, I think, you know, humanity at large. You know, we need mm-hmm. to, and I think there's definitely a lot of Asian uh, activists, you know, and they'll they'll give you a history of how Asians have mm-hmm. been involved in the civil rights movement yeah. and a lot of activity. But I think we need more you know, um, we need people like our parents or, you know, our sister, our, our family members to kind of be mm-hmm. in that fight because, yeah, we're not we're always going to be seen as foreigners, no matter how many mm-hmm. white friends or white coworkers you have. Um, you know, you go out into like, you know, uh, parts of the country where you're not there, like you're the only one you're going to feel that you're going to feel mm-hmm. that other. Um, and and that's just you know the way it is until we can change it. Yeah. And I mean, like, even in in Asia, right, like Asians in Asia, like they, you know, they don't have maybe they don't know of many examples of people who are activists, who Mm. who are like who stand up against authority, who stand up against maybe like uh, their government when the government is doing wrong, because, you know, in 
in totalitarian, authoritarian, you know, regimes, those people are silenced, those people are killed, those people are written out of history books. So they, they themselves don't have a lot of examples, and might Mm -hmm. think, oh, like, this is what being a a citizen or part of our society um, is, you know, that's what it means to just like, you know, kind of accept um, the benevolent or not so benevolent benevolent authority mm-hmm. figure. Mm-hmm. I have a question. What do you think? Is there a responsibility for immigrants to the U.S. to kind of learn about the history of the U.S.? Like, not just you know the cookie yeah, cutter totally. history they give you, but like the racial history in the U.S. Totally. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I'm going to speak specifically about the South Asian community and maybe bring in like, you know, some of the phenomenon I see in the Muslim community, too, because that's another part of my identity. And the thing about the Muslim community is that it's really racially diverse, like, um, you know, I half of the Muslims in the U.S. are black. And they're black American. They're not like children of immigrants. They're descendants of slaves. So, you know, in in that community, I feel like it behooves us, you know, as Muslims to understand the history because half of our, you know, our community, that's their their direct history, right? So if we want to understand other folks in our community then, you know, we need to understand that history. And, you know, a a more important point, I think, is that it is, like, immigrant groups have benefited so much from from the, the work that has happened in social justice movements. Mm. Um, You know... I think that not knowing, like, our history makes it seem like, you know, prior to the, you know, 70s or whatever, like, Asians were not in the U.S., and then all of a sudden we we came and, like, we, you know, you know, prescribed to the American dream and we pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps and because we live in America where everyone is free and has access to you know all the tools for success that's why we're doing well right it the model minority myth can thrive because people don't know about history mm. right they don't know about their own history of of Asians coming to America you know before the the latter half of the 20th century and the discrimination they faced the 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 huge battles they faced, you know, being integrated into the society, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll speak from, like, being a Muslim American South Asian. Like, I can be more comfortable navigating spaces, being different looking, because Black communities have been doing that since they first arrived here. You know what I mean? You know, social justice movements of post-slavery didn't just benefit black people right it benefited everyone uh, everyone who wasn't white male of a certain class 
So in that sense, I think that um, it's really important for people who are immigrants to know specifically about about American history vis-a-vis like how it relates to black America. Hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, what you said about just knowing your own people's history in the U.S. is important. But yeah, going back to what, you know, the entirety of U.S. history um, needs to be known. Because like you said, Tanya, if we don't know these things, then we don't see that we're still in that, like, we're not in a post-racial world, right? If But if we come into the States thinking that it is, then we we don't know that we've been excluded in the past. Or, you know, like, by the, like I'm talking about the, like the Chinese Exclusion Act in particular. Yeah. Um, or like the internment of internment. Jap- the Japanese population. Mm-hmm. Like, if we don't know that these things happen in particular, then we think, you know, we're good. America loves us. You know, whites love us. But, like, that's not the case. And certainly for me, I have not read anything about you know that time period so i do want i do have that on my to-do list for this year is to educate myself on that history because yeah i totally agree with you like if you come into you know the states in 2020 or whatever maybe not 2020 um but like in this like kind of contemporary age you think that those things don't matter or that they didn't mm-hmm. affect they didn't affect you where you are now so mm-hmm. totally agree with you Jaslyn. um even if like it's not on the immigration exam like there should be some way that they can get a real history lesson and not just what's on that exam yeah and and as we all know like history the way it's um the way we learn about it now right is sanitized right mm-hmm. and so I think in the way that, you know, sometimes slavery and, like, the effects of slavery, it like, that's been sanitized in the history books that, you know, we opened up when we were in elementary school. And kind of, like, talking about it as it's this faraway thing that happened a long, long time ago. And, you know, it was bad, but, like, America is not that anymore and we got over it, right? Like, in the same way... You know, slavery is sanitized. I feel like episodes in American history, like Japanese internment or Chinese Exclusion Act, if we do learn about them growing up, they're they're also sanitized. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, you know, that was a blip in the history books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in World War II, we were fighting because, you know, we were fighting the Nazis because, you know, um, you know, what they were doing to you know, European Jews was atrocious, but like, you know, we're not going to highlight that America was doing, you know, X, Y, Z to Japanese folks in the U.S. who have been here for generations um, because that's a blip in our history and we're not that. Right. So, you know, I mean, that's an unfortunate thing about how we look about our past. And I hope that like we just as we're trying to like sort through like the you know the connections of what happened you know in the slavery you know era of american history to what's happening today we can make those same connections with like events that occurred um in the asian community yeah and i would say the slavery era 
um, didn't end in 1865. Um, yeah. Slavery just took another form, and there was actually still literal slavery going on until the 1950s and 60s. It's documented. Um, but um, I wanted to bring up this book. I haven't read it yet, but I feel like it's going to change my life. I watched um, an Oprah conversation with Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote this book called Cast. Uh, um, yeah. And it talks about the caste system in the U.S., which we don't really recognize or we don't talk about. I mean, we talk about mm-hmm. you know, racism, but we don't talk about the caste system. Mm-hmm. And um, they were talking to all these people. She has eight pillars on which the caste system rests. And it's like, I'm going to read it, and I, wanna, I would love to have a conversation on the podcast. But do you think that uh, immigrants to the U.S., specifically Asian immigrants, have this this concept as well like so on the conversation an Indian um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. man was saying how in India he grew up he was in the highest caste in India Mm -hmm. and you know he's treating very well he had servants and all this good stuff and so when he came to the U.S. he was not in that caste anymore and so he had a lot of problems fitting in he had a lot of problems understanding why he wasn't being favored anymore, privileged. Um, oh, yeah. So do you think there's an idea or that thought that maybe immigrants um, maybe have a high caste that come to the U.S. or, or mm-hmm. think that they can come to the U.S. and they know that maybe they can have a better caste if they align themselves with the dominant culture mm. when oh, they come yeah. here? Ah. Uh, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think like, you know, that is the larger discussion about why the minor model minority phenomenon continues to be at play is because we as human beings, when, you know, when you have a group of people who come from one culture and they are transplanted to the, the culture and norms of another group of people, as human beings, we're going to align ourselves with whatever whatever entity is going to give us power, right? So what Isabel Wilkerson is saying, I see that at play, you know? And it's not even that I see it at play with new immigrants. I even see that at play with um, the children of immigrants, the grandchildren of immigrants, because it's, you know, it's, it's so ingrained in us as human beings to align ourselves with the entity that is in power and what their expectations are. So for example, friends of mine who like enter the corporate world, right? Like they're in finance or they're in like, um, you know, places that like traditionally white folks have power, right? If they want to be successful, they, they are going to, they're going to adopt the norms of that and expectations of the people who have power because they think that's the key to for them to like do well right and another thing i was going to say is that that's part of the reason why i think like people fall so easily into these roles because you know we we talk about how bad racism and the racial hierarchy is in the u.s but just being a human being on this earth 
no matter where you are, what country, what culture you originate from, you are subject to a caste system, right? So, you know, maybe this Indian person in Isabel Wilkerson's book, like, he kind of got it. He kind of got it that, okay, there's a caste system in India, I fit here, and in America, I fit somewhere else. And so that's why he, you know, plays into the system. I witnessed a lot growing up because I grew up in New York City. First of all, it's like a melting pot. A lot of immigrants who come to the U.S. sometimes come first through New York, uh, cities like New York City. Um, But in the South Asian community, you see a lot of examples of people who were lawyers or doctors or, you know, like in higher socioeconomic positions or in higher castes, right? Maybe they were Brahmin or maybe they were like in the high social order in South Asia, but then they come here and they are taxi drivers. They work at the deli. They are selling newspapers at the newspaper stand, right? So that is what is contributes to the trauma of, you know, in this particular case, you know, Asian immigration like I I I always talk to people about how like immigration is is traumatic it's very very traumatic um no matter like you know how how what the background is of that individual even if you're coming if you're emigrating because you have uh you're going to college or graduate school here and you're you know or you're coming here for a job or you're trying to you know get to a higher caste level by by emigrating to America. Either way, it's traumatic, right? Because you're being ripped from one world and trying to conform to another world. And I have always said this, I say this to my husband all the time, that like, I feel like as a second generation immigrant, like, yeah, I didn't live in Bangladesh where my parents are from. I didn't grow up in that society, but I'm still dealing with that trauma of being uprooted of being ripped away from one world and having to make space in a new world it it kind of it lasts for a long time it lasts for generations mm-hmm. i kind of went another i went in another direction with it's that okay. with that yeah. conversation but that's definitely something that i noticed and what do you do when you're traumatized right you try to you just try to survive, right? You try to survive, like, materially, psychologically, you know? You're you're just trying to, trying to make, um, work through that, that trauma to make, like, having transplanted yourself worth it for not just you, but your future generations. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you think about that, Lisa? Well, Jasmine, I just added that book to my Goodreads, so thank you for that. Uh, yeah, the caste system, I think that... So maybe the caste system is not as laid out, uh, you know, in terms of having different levels in, like, where I came from, where I, my family's from, uh, which is Taiwan. Um, but there's definitely, you know, like like Tanya said, there's always going to be hierarchies, you know, spoken or unspoken. Um, and I definitely see how that fits into, you know, I talked about this in another episode about how I felt like I, I was, I was assimilating to the U S culture, 
um, and in terms of where I lived, I was assimilating to white U.S. culture. And that also feeds into this like myth that if you assimilate, then you'll be accepted. If you are accepted, then you'll have, you know, quote unquote, the American dream um, and everything will be like, OK. But, you know, I'm really interested in reading this book and seeing more like almost like not where I fit in because I don't want to fit into anyone's structure like anymore but like just to understand like what that perspective is it will be really interesting yeah I feel like immigration the process of immigrating is like is like changing high schools right (laughs) like let's say you move to another state and you're going to a new high school you know as you guys have experienced you know in high school in the u.s like there is a social hierarchy you go into the cafeteria and you're like okay survival mode am i going to be picked on or am i going to be the one picking on or am i going to be socially isolated right and you know sometimes people if they can get away with it they align themselves with with the bullies who bully other people right Mm -hmm. because you identify okay i don't want to be that like you know, quote unquote, nerd in the corner who's by himself, who's an outcast. So I'll join the other groups of people. And maybe those folks are, you know, bullying him or her. um, And I feel uncomfortable with it, but I'd rather be there than in his spot. Mm -hmm. And I kind of see that happening a lot. Like, I I hate to like minimize it by, you know, giving this like really simple example. But, you know, that's what happens when like immigrant communities, you know, I would argue even like people who are black, you know, who come from maybe like, you know, who who are part of the African diaspora, for example. Right. Like maybe they are also subject to this where they see black Americans like, you know, people who are descendants of slaves. They see how they're treated. And, you know, it's a signal to them like, okay, we don't want to we don't want to have to deal with what they're dealing with. So we will do whatever we can to align ourselves with you know, other folks, white folks, or, you know, the people who are more visible in this, in this society or, or have more power. I definitely see that in the South Asian community. Yeah, I think that's a big problem because people do see that black people for the most part are in the lowest, you know, rung of this caste system in the U.S. And so they want to distinguish themselves. They don't want to associate themselves with black people. They want to look down on them just to maybe internally feel better or feel like, you know, maybe we're not in the highest level, but at least we're not at the lowest. So I think I think it's a big problem. Yeah. And like a lot of this is not articulated, you know, explicitly. It's happening implicitly. It's happening in the background. myth and how we can 
can it be dis- can it be dispelled? I mean, can can it go away, or do you think with every new influx of immigrants, it just inherently mm-hmm. there? Well, um, I mean, before we go into like the hopes for the future, <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of hopes for the future. <laughs> no, but um, Tanya, you were feeling hopeful on twelve p.m. January sixth. You were feeling hopeful. <laughs> I remember. You said that. <laughs> oh, did you write it down? Because it's so rare. You had to. Like, no, I remember because two hours later. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Oh, my God. That was the same day. The day that yes. I was like, guys, I have so much hope is when like awful things happen. So I will never say that again. Um, <laughs> never have hopes, guys. Um, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, I wanted to I wanted to like. Uh, kind of go back and ask ourselves like or or like share how like um how like learning about like all of this is changing our perspectives in life yeah I mean I, t- I talked about this uh when Jasmine and I were discussing my um going through the book me and white supremacy how I had to confront my own internal uh, beliefs of meritocracy um, mm-hmm. and how I believe that because I worked hard um, and got good grades and went to a school and, you know, all this other stuff, that's why I succeed. And the reason why others don't succeed um, is because they don't work hard or because they're lazy or because... Um, yeah, they just didn't, they didn't put in the work. And so I've really had mm-hmm. to confront myself uh, that that is not the way it is. You, many groups of people can work hard, like you said, Tanya, um, and not achieve quote unquote success because there are mm-hmm. systems and uh, biases and prejudice and racism in place that doesn't allow like those things to happen. Um, and so in terms of the model minority myth, you know, I totally see how I fed into this system, how I believed it, um, and even how like I, you know, and teaching my kids as well, like, hey, kids, you got to study, you got to work hard. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, end up like with a bad job and you'll not mm-hmm, be able mm-hmm. to like provide for your family. And so I'm learning to not see things this way anymore like i cannot attribute mm-hmm. people's not failures but not not necessarily failures but people's un, uh, inability to achieve quote-unquote american success. dream to yeah. it's not because they didn't work hard it's not because i worked mm-hmm. harder it's because i was mm-hmm. afforded those privileges because i am a light-skinned mm-hmm. asian east asian who mm-hmm. you know is expected to achieve these things or given the opportunities to achieve these things because I am part of that privileged group. So definitely seeing how I fed into it and trying to not perpetuate it within my own family. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like you said, Tanya, it's, I I don't know if I have hope. I don't mean, (laughs) I'm like always on the fence about it. Well, this is the thing, like it also, it also ingrains in, in uh like the asian community that what success looks like right Mm -hmm. success looks like you have um a job that either people respect or they don't right Mm -hmm. like if you are like a a professor of 
you know, electrical engineering, that is a respectable job. If you are, you know, a school teacher, that's less respectable, right? So that that's like, you know, putting in values within like our community that are very like, you know, very monolithic and very like centered around like um, material success, like, you know, achieving certain things like financially or, you know, prescribing to like, like academic achievements as like a form of success. Mm. Right. So, um, but on another point, like, I feel like the aftermath of me really confronting how bad the internalized white supremacy is in like in myself and others in my community is that I feel like it causes friction now. Like mm. I feel like like it's hard for me it's more difficult for me to identify as as South Asian now than maybe I when I was in my twenties. Mm. If that makes any sense, right? Like like I wanna identify less with with, you know, my culture because I you know, it's hard to it's really hard to be in, you know, in a community of people who are still kind of working through like their, their white supremacist ideas. Right. And I feel like it alienates me from a lot of like my peers who maybe like we have a lot in common in terms of like racial background and how we grew up, but like we have very different like ideas of how the world works. Right. So while, you know, Growing up, I was always, like, you know, keen on, like, joining South Asian American, like, student groups and stuff like that. I, as an adult, I don't really align myself much with, like, groups of South Asian people. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see that at play at all or? I definitely see where you're coming from where, when your when our community has these stereotypes and they uphold them, um, they want to uphold them, then yeah, that's the, that makes, you know, me less likely or less wanting to be associated with people who hold that stereotype and who want to like hold on to mm-hmm. white supremacy lies. Uh, so I def- definitely see what you mean. Um, and it is, it is a very fuzzy, you know, line right because um we're gonna always look the way we are people are gonna assume the things they want to assume about us and so uh maybe change from the inside you know i'm i'm hoping to do a little of that with the asian group at work um to talk about these uh difficult issues that we have never talked about um because like you said i'm i don't want to give up on that community but yeah it's it's going to be Mm -hmm. an uphill battle but it's something that we need to do from from within yeah i was gonna say um if you want things to change in your community you can't really dissociate from them you kind of have to work with them and i don't know not educate them but you know speak up when you hear something problematic or, you know, start with your family. I don't think they'll they'll get this, you know, perspective from their circle. So you kind of have to be that voice. I agree. But it's interesting to feel less Asian because 
of the stereotypes that they're perpetuating. Yeah, and, you know, this is probably another phenomenon at play. I don't want to be tokenized as Asian either, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like, you know, one thing we didn't discuss is that, you know, we look Asian, you know, we, we will, like, there's no going around it. We look, we look like the other. So no matter how quote unquote integrated we feel or how American we feel in our culture and our mindset, whatever that means, like people are going to perceive us as some like exotic other in, in, in some form or fashion. Right. Mm -hmm. So I guess sometimes I resist because I don't want to be tokenized by the majority culture as like, okay, well, you're the, you're representing like, you know, the fact that we have diversity in this, Mm -hmm. in this space. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of why I also, um, resist sometimes as like okay well like for instance lisa i don't know how many times you've encountered this but have people come to you and and ask you where you're from at the grocery store yes yeah yeah like people who don't know you i mean (laughs) right who haven't heard you speak sometimes people like come up to me and they're like oh where are you from and when i answer oh i'm from brooklyn new york like it really disappoints them Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. no where are you really from and i think like other folks have have shared this you know experience before too and it's because like sometimes it's like you know the way you see me is not how i see myself Mm. right so you know yeah um, and i think lisa even she did that to me she said that (laughs) she had asked me where i was from so it's not just other people to you or us it's, you know, she thought I'd give a better answer than Virginia. Um, I am so sorry, Jasmine. Well, like, I, I guess I don't understand where else you would be from. Right. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's the problem. Like, the education that people have is mm-hmm. if you're not white, mm-hmm. maybe you're not from here. When in reality, you know, my people have been here probably since the founding, most likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's that's not the idea of the typical, quote unquote, American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have to break that 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 stereotype as well. Mm-hmm. So the future, <laughs> Lisa, are you going to be a tiger mom? <laughs> Remember Tiger, like that book came out a few years ago. I think it was like almost five or ten years ago. It it actually came out in our communities. Yeah, it actually came out in 2011. And the Tiger Mom book is written by this uh, East Asian mom who, you know, according to articles that you'll you'll read about it, is Mm -hmm. that she didn't let her kids go to sleepovers and she made them practice violin and piano, like, I don't know, eight hours a day or some ridiculous amount of hours. And that fed into the uh, model minority myth, you know, that that's what Asian kids did because that's what their Asian parents made them do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... And I read the book. Uh, the book had more to it than just that. Um, but it was definitely 
I, I can honestly say that when I read it, I was like, huh, should I be doing these things? Like, <laughs> am I not pushing my kids hard enough? Like, am I not Am demanding? I really Asian if I don't do right. this? Yeah, I totally, like, felt that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, But, no, I don't want to be, I don't want to perpetuate, like I said earlier, I don't want to perpetuate those stereotypes for my own kids. You know, while I do... Um, encourage them to work as hard as they can in school I do also try to remind them that you don't have to be good at math you don't have to be good at science you don't even have to like science but you have to try in these subjects Um, you know you have to just you know do your best work as hard as you can I know that they have the potential but I hope that I don't push them into the sciences just because I like the sciences. I hope Mm -hmm. that I can support them in whatever decision they make. Um, And I hope that, you know, I say I hope these things because they're not at that age where they can make those kind of decisions. And as a parent, I know Mm -hmm. that if I ever say anything like, I hope I do this, I probably won't do it. So I'm going to really hope that I can, you know, be true to my word and also and continue to teach them about um, the white supremacy system of how things are and how we can change hopefully those systems uh but so i do see hope in terms of in my own family but i don't know in the larger community it's going to take a lot more talking to them yeah i think like like for the future or at least the present i get very um i get very excited to see Asians, uh, in, in my case, like South Asians who are in non-traditional careers who are like killing it. You know what I mean? Like, like actors and musicians and like artists or whatever who are doing things that maybe people don't expect, you know, brown people to do. But they're like doing such amazing work and and um, like they are part of the cultural fabric in ways that like you know we weren't always taught was possible or good or whatever so like I get heartened by that like when I see like you know uh you know like my a friend of mine is uh, a comedian she wears the headscarf and she Mm. you know is doing something that uh you know we were never taught growing up as like you know something that you want to aspire to be and I think you know, the more options we give to our children, like the more like beautiful things can come out of our communities and like the more multifaceted our identities can be, you know? How about you, Jaslyn? Do you see any hope for us and <laughs> this myth? <laughs> um, I don't know. I just think that people should... Um, not group people together based on stereotypes and that goes for Asians and that goes for you know black people um Mm -hmm. how we break those stereotypes I don't know and I think that the the model myth the model minority myth stereotypes like that's something that we can do in terms of like uh, like Tanya said, like not perpetuating, you know, a list of careers that's acceptable on a list of careers that's not acceptable. Um, but in terms of the stereotypes that, and I'm talking about the harmful stereotypes that 
well, white supremacy puts on um, other groups, particularly black um, and brown communities, like that's not for that's not for those communities to to fight because that's not their stereotypes for themselves. It's not their burden. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's not their burden. So it's but it is our burden as Asian Americans to fight the stereotypes that we have held on to because it benefited us um, in terms of this, in terms of the white supremacist framework. And we need to not keep feeding that monster, that system. Jaslyn, I mean, this is a really late to ask you, but like, how, when when did you co- become aware of like, of the model minority phenomenon or or the um i guess the like anti-black racism within asian communities is that something that like crossed your your mind or that you you witnessed i don't know when that phrase entered my consciousness and i don't know if it was present in high school like i actively noticed you know, Asians were in my orchestra or in my honors classes because I myself was in the orchestra and in those honors classes, right? So I didn't, I didn't see any difference between us. In fact, you know, I had friends that were Asian, and it was fine. Now maybe I just wasn't, you know, my eyes weren't open or I wasn't looking through that perspective because as you get older, you learn more. And then you look and you're like, well, dang. <laughs> yeah. It's really like that. So I don't, I really can't pinpoint when that phrase was, I was cognizant of that phrase or that myth. And I, maybe I still, but I do think it has permeated me. Like you said, you know, white supremacy is like a smog and all these stereotypes just enter your consciousness without you knowing. Um, because when we watch this movie, it's called Parasite for our movie club. And yep. it was it was a movie based in Korea, South Korea. And it was about this family that was like a lower class and they were struggling financially and they were living in a basement that was really dirty. And in my mind, I was like, Asians live like this? <laughs> you know, it's like, it kind of, surprised me I don't know why it should surprise me like you know but it did so it is something that's kind of subconscious I think the idea that Asians are more successful or they usually um, are able to attain a higher level of success in general in this country but of course that's not the same everywhere yeah I was gonna say about the meritocracy like when people say work hard and you'll succeed, I think they're talking about a specific type of work because I can't think of any group of people in this country that has worked harder, <laughs> you know, to build this country than the African-American population. Literally, this country is built on our backs and we continue to work hard, but maybe the work that we're doing is not recognized as um honorable work like i was reading this article that said 
black men have, you know, like an average of 10 years lower life expectancy because they work so hard mm-hmm. at not only at mm-hmm. trying to make a living, but trying to overcome racism and all this stuff. Like the hard work is there, but because of the systems and because of, um, you know, opportunities that are present or not present, they don't attain attain this level of education or level of monetary success that one would deem as the American dream or you made it or you're a hard worker and therefore you're successful. So I think we need mm-hmm. to kind of think about what we mean when we say work hard. Tanya, thank you again for being on the show today. We really enjoyed discussing this myth, your identities, um, and how, you know, even our upbringing was pretty similar in terms of being working class families. But uh, let's, you know, let's work together. Let's dispel this myth from within together. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) Here's to a brighter future. Write it down. Somebody write that down. All right, so we'd like to end every episode with what we call a better world nugget. So that's uh, something we took away from this conversation um, that we can maybe employ in our lives to make the world a better place. So I'll go first. Um, Today's better world nugget for me is under trying to understand and educate myself more on the history of uh, this country um, not just, uh, you know, the Asian history in this country, but also um, the entirety of the U.S. history, which includes uh, the black community. Um, because like Tanya said, if I don't know about this, then I am ignorant to the fact that, you know, this country has treated all groups of people horribly. Um, and I can't forget that and can't forget that that still exists today. So, Jaslyn, how about you? What's your better world nugget? My better world nugget is that everyone should just treat people with respect. Whether or not they have a job you think is um, laudable or make the money you think is uh, a nice amount of money or what background they're from. If we all start with respect, I think we can move from there and have a better understanding. So. Tanya, do you have a better world nugget? Lisa, you stole mine. Oh. No, but um, kind of continuing on with what you said, I think the 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 better world nugget I took out of this conversation is that sometimes we think that our experiences based on our identities, like, are isolated. And I think, you know, I was heartened by how this conversation connected, like, the Asian American experience and, like, what we see you know, um, what else we see going on in society, um, the other forms of racism. And the more we learn about each other's experiences and connect them to like, you know, the larger, the larger um, problem of white supremacy, the more I feel like we can see each other as a larger community, not just based on our like 
country of origin or like our cultures of origin um but just like um you know see each other as human beings so that's my better world nugget thanks for listening to this episode of the racism podcast before you go be sure to like or subscribe wherever you're listening to stay up to date on new episodes and let us know have you heard of this model minority myth how has that impacted you and what would you like to see changed you can find us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube at racisms podcast and on our blog racismspodcast.wordpress.com peace everyone be safe Music for this episode was created by Jaslyn Dukes and Kyle Carson. This episode was produced and edited by Kyle Carson.